0: I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Robert Buderi. He's an American journalist, author, and editor. He served as technology correspondent and editor for Business Week and for MIT's Technology Review Editor-in-Chief. He is the author of the new book, Where Futures Converge. Welcome, Bob.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: Delighted to have you today. Uh, excited to discuss the book, Where Futures Converge Kendall Square and the Making of a Global Innovation Hub. Um, what inspired you about Kendall Square? People know Harvard Square, but Kendall Square has a, a hugely rich and impactful history. When did you decide to? tackle this project to chronicle it?
1: Well, I mean, I've been working, living uh, in studying in Kendall Square for some 30 years. It's been called the most innovative square mile on the planet. Uh, And it's this incredible concentration of startups, big company, high tech innovation. And so um, as I sold after I, I had a media company that we sold, I started thinking about Uh, what I should do next to go back to writing and I thought this story of this innovation hub right next to Boston um, that people come from all over the world to learn about um, was really poorly understood the the long history of it so I thought uh, this is going back about 2018 you know that uh, I thought I would begin to tackle this as a narrative history. So you
0: trace the stories of companies like Moderna, Pfizer, Um, also Hubs, IBM, Amazon, Facebook. Um, But what to you um, in this moment is the most meaningful? We'll we'll retrace the history, but what would you say is most meaningful that's going on in Kendall Square as we speak?
1: What's happening right now, there's there's kind of two major threads that I see. Uh, And one is this incredible convergence that we all see around us of, Uh, the life sciences, biotechnology, biology, and computer sciences. And and that is engendering uh, tremendous innovation in healthcare, um, artificial intelligence, all these things. And that's that's something we all see in Kindle Square, it's kind of on steroids because it's startups, big companies, new students coming out of MIT especially, all coming together on this. And the other thread is something that's much harder to see. It's these same people and companies, or or many of the same types of people and companies, beginning uh, to look anew at some of the big um, problems and challenges the world faces, like energy, water, and the environment. And we can't see as well where those things are gonna come out. But uh, if history tells us anything, it's that these new innovations could take us by surprise. Uh, and tackle some of these big, big problems.
0: How have the relationships changed between uh, Massachusetts, the the state, uh, the universities surrounding the square, um, or immersed the students and faculty immersed in the square, namely MIT, Harvard, Tufts, uh, also BU, BC? Uh, how have those relationships changed between how? how the state and the universities function within this environment of Kendall Square?
1: Well, I think, um, I, I don't know so much about the state government. It, I think there's been this growing awareness over the last multiple decades that new innovations are coming out of, uh, out of these universities, young students, uh, the convergence of these new technologies. And I think there's been an embrace um, uh, of that uh, at at all the universities you mentioned, uh, the the focus on entrepreneurship, uh, startups, new innovation has dramatically increased, uh, and and the state has been open to it and helped fund a lot of new startups or startup spaces, things like that.
0: I mentioned the state because Massachusetts consistently is ranked as one of the best states for education, not just higher education, public education, right. one of the most livable states, and and I wonder if. This is an example of not outsourcing human capital and intellectual endeavor, but managing to incubate this in a way that brings sustenance to the people of the state, not to suggest that Massachusetts is some glory land panacea for all social problems, uh, nor Boston or Cambridge, but but something maybe going on here that uh, is a model in a constructive way that. That uh, feeds innovation um, without a, a stranglehold on the local population in a, in a negative way.
1: You know, it's a it's a tough uh, question. Uh, there's no simple kind of way to describe it or or you know solve it if you're trying to to replicate this kind of thing. I mean, this amazing concentration of universities and colleges all around Boston, something like a hundred of them, you know, is pre- presenting this wellspring of talent young talent now a lot of that talent goes away and and people in boston lament the you know oh we're losing 75 percent or whatever the number is of college grads are moving out of boston but they don't look at the flip the way flip side the way you kind of described it which was but 25 or or again what the number is are staying and that's a big number and they're feeding back into this innovation economy and i think that's that's kind of i don't think it's anything um the state really did it's the environment that's there with the universities the availability of capital uh venture capitalists and and other funders of things uh and this culture of innovation and 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 that's very hard to um you know replicate if you're somewhere else
0: on the flip side bob you say that this is gentrification gone rogue uh you you know you you chronicle Um, the lack of accessible housing I mean the fact that um, Moderna and companies like it are building a a state of of living that's that's um, accessible to maybe its employees but not the rest of of Boston or Cambridge so you know looking at this as an ever-evolving situation or problem like I would think and hope your book was being read by the people there enough that they can they can bring to these conversations an informed perspective about how to further grow the square.
1: You know, I think it's a really good point I tried to hard to look at the challenges because it's not just this great story of innovation. It could be the the most innovative square mile on the planet. This but it is running the danger of freezing out uh, a lot of the uh, middle class and the workers that traditionally have been in East Cambridge around this area, and so um, this is something I tried to dive into, talk to citizen groups and, and neighborhood groups, uh, and and I think the companies are very aware um, that there's a whole need for um, talent that's not like you know with PhDs or even college degrees to do manufacturing to to work in uh, you know well-paying jobs, and and I and I and it's. Um, uh, and then they have to have affordable housing around there, you know. And 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 so these are things that are all underway or being addressed to some degree, and we don't know how successful they'll be.
0: You've covered technology for a long time. I think that a fair stereotype or generalization about technology's impact on contemporary society is that it's increased efficiency and has simultaneously imperiled. Um, humanity or specifically human health and well-being. So the inf- the efficiencies, net output. Um, while it might be good in the way that the booster for Moderna is constructed, the net output for people as a whole may actually be a worse ball game. You know, it, it while there are problems being solved in the square, there's a bigger problem being created. Um now tell me if that's a wrong thesis and, and if so, either way, whether it's wrong or right, I mean, you must have in all of your career covering technology for business week and MIT um, technology review, you must've thought as you reviewed products and chronicled and profiled innovators, like these people are, are on their way to making society a lot better through technology. And I wonder if you, you know, you can you can fairly conclude that that happened or did not happen at this point.
1: I I guess I challenge that you know statement. I think overall the 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 march the steady march of high tech innovation technology has made the world a better place. Um, uh, it certainly enabled us to uh, to address major challenges in healthcare and transportation. You know all kinds of things, but it. But it has, it does come, it's not a straight line thing and it's not all good. And you, you can talk about the ability of computers and, and AI to find new drugs, but they can also uh, take away our privacy. And, 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 you know, and, and it depends a lot on who's behind them and how they're being used. Um, if you're kind of an optimist about humanity the way I am, I, I think we, we turn through these problems, we face them. Uh, And uh, ultimately, we're better off, but I recognize uh, that we may not be.
0: Right. I mean, one example clearly of a pro-social output is here's this company, Moderna, that was working on mRNA vaccines and most of society was not clamoring for them or aware of their potential necessity to, to stave off, you know, even more millions of people dying from the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's an example of where um, while salaries have increased and housing has increased, the, the, the specific design of what they were producing um, was immediately important and, and, you know, helpful to, um, to protect human life.
1: Yeah. And I think um, the the whole story of Moderna, which I actually created a map in the, in the book, it kind of reflects this, this thing about the Boston Kendall Square ecosystem—all the people, all the key founders were with almost within walking distance of each other, within a few square miles, and they could get together and talk about um, their ideas and innovation in this in this firsthand way that I think um, kind of turbocharged the founding of that company. So it was founded in 2010, but you know, 11, 12 years later, it's addressing this global challenge. Uh, In this completely unique way.
0: What would you say is the next frontier of innovation in Kendall Square? Um, What's being developed there now that not not necessarily in the medical space, but quite possibly uh, that is going to have that same kind of revolutionary impact?
1: That's a big one. I I would say. You know, in the biological fields, there's a lot of, um, you know, places like Biogen, but also many startups and at MIT and Harvard and all these universities that uh, 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 look at neurological diseases, So, like, especially like Alzheimer's. You know, I, I had Phil Sharp, uh, Nobel Prize winning um, biologist at MIT and founder of Biogen, who, who predicted that you know, that big advance in Alzheimer's and, and neurologic is gonna come out of quite likely Kendall Square. Um, mm-hmm. and that's such a huge issue. Um, you know, if we can slow that down or even cure it, um, and and there have there has been a biogen drug that was approved and has had uh some promise, but I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg on that. Um You know, and then there are these other things that I kind of alluded to earlier. Um, These new types of startups that are tackling things like energy, like here we have this war in Ukraine and a big part of uh, the effect was on global energy supplies and so forth. Well, you know, there's fusion startups in Kendall Square. We have no idea if they're going to there have been fusion startups before and they haven't gone anywhere. Um, but is there a new power source that could uh we you know wean us off of oil, that kind of thing?
0: Can you elaborate on that fusion? What what do you mean by that?
1: You know, as a long sought-after power source for you know, kind of um cheap, affordable, abundant, and if you in theory do it right, clean energy. And this has been a kind of holy grail for a long time since the days of you know nuclear power. Um but it hasn't come to fruition. It's been a huge problem and and challenge. And and now uh, I think you're seeing new steps. I don't know if they'll come to fruition or not. But that's something that gets me, you know, excited. Um, you know, there's a huge problem as well in, in the U.S. and everywhere about groundwater contamination. Well, there are companies looking at uh, how do you produce clean water and keep water clean and those kinds of things. Um, and can you take you know ocean water and desalinate it in new ways that kind of yeah
0: that's an interesting point it's something i mention often on the open mind in in our programming the the importance of a political consensus around clean water and air um you described that as a a, a crisis right now or a, a looming crisis the the um water contamination as an issue in the United States uh yeah. i i think um you know people might associate that with what happened with lead pipes in flint michigan but i don't know that there is a consciousness in this country about a problem with the water
1: yeah well i'm not sure it's how universal is certainly been more and more information i think the new york times had a big story this year about the groundwater contamination all around the country you're seeing things as like- a result
0: of of exploration, fracking, or, or just it, because infrastructures have not become obsolete? I,
1: you know, I don't know all the causes, but here in New Hampshire, one of the big causes is poor, uh, is leaking septic systems that leak into the groundwater. And, um, you know, you can see uh, that, okay, is there a way to clean it up? Is there a way to produce septic systems that are more secure? Those kind of things that are the kinds of things that startups uh, tackle. I don't happen to know of any, but it's just the kind of problem um, that I'm sure there are multitudes of startups looking at.
0: What I'm trying to get at, Bob, is is whether the the impetus, the, what, what animates the innovators in Kendall Square right now uh, is more in the uh, post-Tesla uh, and Amazon state of mind for Bezos and Musk, which is the well-being outside of our realm. I think, uh, there are some instances of work they're doing, um, in the realm of human endeavor on this planet, but they're very obsessed with shooting into galactic space. And then they're there, you know, there's of course the, the pursuit of, of Tesla and possibly Uber too, working towards, um, automated vehicles, you know, autonomous self-driving cars. um, it's not clear that exploration of outer space or self-driving cars are really the, the kinds of innovation that we need right now. Um, I mean, to Musk's credit, the Starlink system has provided a satellite internet to, and can potentially provide it to every being irrespective of, of economic status in this planet. And if that were made available to every person, that would be a huge triumph. Um, th- that, that being said that, the the kind of scintillating things in the minds of of the t- of the chief innovators of this of this country are not necessarily connected to the everyday well-being of people the water issue is the outcome of the water issue is so i'm i'm just trying to understand now who who are the mentors informing the work of innovators in Kendall Square right now
1: i mean it's uh it's this combination of you know the the professors uh, other entrepreneurs who are giving back and supporting people, uh, even the venture capitalists who, um, yeah, they want to make money. But one of the things that you you got to that I think is really important, and, and there's no way to prove that it's true, but it's, it's certainly true in the culture of the innovation around Boston and Kendall Square. They look to Silicon Valley and they think, you know, there's great things happening there. People want to make a lot of money. They want to do things like self-driving cars, uh, you know, and shoot into space. But in Kendall Square in Boston, they they point with pride to we take on things like Alzheimer's, we take on things like clean water, we take on things like new energy form uh forms. And it's not that there isn't happening in Silicon Valley and other places around the world, but they this ethos is we're there's a very strong ethos that we want to help people and the world and it kind of comes before making money or having a new app or and, it's and it seems
0: to me bob that there's a mentality driving innovation there that is not yeah the predominant mentality in silicon valley
1: yeah and it could have something to do with the whole roots of you know new england and the and the and the culture and the and the work ethic and all that i People theorize about it all the time. There's just no way to say conclusively what it is.
0: And this may or may not be related to anything on your mind uh, for the book. But I have to ask you, just out of pure curiosity and fascination, I mentioned to our viewers you covered technology a long time. Did you think it was going to, did you think the internet would be such a huge focal point of how we think of innovation for the last two decades. Of course, Google, now Alphabet, you know, Facebook, Meta. um, And and I think many of us who came of age still young enough to see the flying cars in the movies, you know, did not necessarily think that the internet would be the sole focus of innovators and that, you know, if we were going to work on gadgets and gizmos that we'd have some alternative to automobiles. Now, not different kinds of automobiles, but actually our own little flying projectiles, or we have drones, but we don't have flying cars. And you've covered this stuff for the last few decades. um, And that's been portrayed in movies. And I'm sure also nonfiction accounts of of looming innovation. And some of this stuff just never happened. So I'm, I'm wondering how you reflect on it.
1: Well, I of course immediately saw the the uh, importance of the this internet right when the first you know connection was made over at UCLA, not, um, and uh, you know I think but that I think that's a big lesson. It comes out from looking at the history of technology, especially in Kendall Square. The big, big thing is traditionally missed by the great majority. The big next the next big thing is traditionally missed by the great majority of the pundits and futurists and all that. And and that's why I'm very hesitant. I think there are these things we see, like the convergence of AI computing and biology, and there's the things we don't see. And that's why I'm theorizing.
0: You know, the the actual mechanical changes of systems has has not really um, sprung into new being. Like, I I mean, I know that people are working on robotic you know, AI programmed, coded things. But like, again, the example of an alternative to a car, the coding just, the the mechanical development just didn't catch up to the coding in in, in my view.
1: I guess what you're saying in some ways that you don't see a lot of uh, like fundamental changes in the way we do traditional things. It's the same types of machines, the same types of things. Right. And, 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 and yeah, I, I mean, I see that, but at the same time, you know, look at this. This isn't that old. And and look how it's changed the world and 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 there's some good things that came out of that too. Um uh but uh let me put it to you this
0: way. Is there machinery you want in your life that you still don't have?
1: (laughs) No, there's not. I don't think there's machinery. I think it's it's what like like one one of the people uh, that I talked to Talked about the creation of drugs and, and one a, a new drug, and you know it could be that the 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 cure for the disease I don't have yet has already been invented, but it hasn't been approved because somebody died off it or some people in a trial. Well, with the power uh, that it's kind of coming out now, it can be much more predicted. Well, your it will work on you, Alexander or you, Bob. But it won't work on Joe or or Jenny over there. And right, right, so right. Those kind of things, much more pre- precision medicine, things yeah. like that. To me, that's not a machine, but it could really transform things and let. Yeah, no. I,
0: before the pandemic, we did an episode with Maria Ferrer, and uh, I asked her about genomic solutions to medical problems. And I mean, they, they were theoretically working on this. To prepare for a pandemic and how we each in the in the case of COVID, the example that you described we each respond differently some fatally some not but um i hear what you're saying you know the in in that respect too the the genomic the advanced knowledge of our genomic data have not that has not caught up with the coding you know so maybe yeah, it's not the yeah, machinery, yeah, yeah.
1: but in that so how respect, we put it together how we apply it those kinds of things yeah and and so that is
0: that because it's so expensive because of of like work around DNA and understanding how our DNA reacts to certain you know stimuli or disease.
1: I don't think it's expensive. I think it's the complexity of it, and 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 just the sheer how did you know how does a drug actually work in a in a body and all the things that are involved in, in understanding that and predicting it tremendously complex and yet. It's not infinite. And, and, and this was something that really came home to me as I was doing interviews for this book, that there are a set, a finite number of interactions and stuff that the human body and drugs can do. And eventually computer power is going to be able to run through those and and get these answers that we don't. But when when that day is, I don't know. You got me thinking, and one of the things I really thought a lot about is, Okay, and something like Moderna or these new innovations, a lot of what happened around, say, the COVID vaccine, it wasn't just Moderna by itself or uh, Pfizer by itself. They relied on collaborations with other scientists and universities and companies all over the world. Um, and and there was a trust factor. And I had someone point out to me that one of the reasons for that trust factor that enabled this collaboration, yeah, we had this great crisis. but people had worked together before. They'd gone to school together before. They may have gone a job somewhere in some other country or some other city. But if um, in this day of post COVID, if we're not interacting as personally as we had in the past, I mean, I had a guy at the Broad Institute tell me uh, the vaccine was produced because there'd been collaborations over the previous 20 years and people had built up this trust if we're not continuing to build up that trust, what happens with the next one? So that's something um, I think about.
0: Absolutely. Well, keep thinking about it. And (laughs) we very much appreciate the history that you chronicled in Where Futures Converge, Kendall Square, and the making of a global innovation hub. Um, Bob, I think... uh, folks will be enticed by our conversation to learn about precisely what's gone on and what is going on in Kendall Square. Thank you for your insight today,
1: sir. Thanks for having me, Alexander.
0: Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org open mind to view this program online or to access over 1500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming.